Hi, welcome to Canna Confidential. I'm your host, Jewel Peter, and on this podcast, we discuss the state of the cannabis industry, as well as any insights we feel might be valuable to our listeners. So without further ado, we'll get to the content. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm here with Cheryl as part of our Canada Confidential Conversation. And we're going to go over uh, a lot of different aspects of the industry today, especially some crossover that's very interesting from uh, a market and an industry that has a lot to do with cannabis, but really hasn't been involved in the industry very much. Then we're going to get into some changes that are happening at the LPs and why that would matter for us. And then we're going to talk about why there's a demand for more research and ultimately more access to cannabis, especially in the U.S. And then we'll get into the conversation of legal versus illegal um, recreational stores, retail facilities, and why there is a case for both. And after that, we'll touch on the likelihood of legalization in the U.S. for 2020. So let's get started right from the top. According to MJ Biz Daily, Deloitte has acquired the Mississauga, Ontario-based Cannabis Compliance, an industry leader in marijuana industry consultancy, the company announced this Tuesday. Financial terms of the transaction were not disclosed, and the newly created CCI Deloitte plans to offer businesses with end-to-end services in the cannabis industry, according to the announcement. Deloitte said that CCI, which is Cannabis Compliance Incorporated, and their 75 employees will work out of its headquarters in Toronto. CCI chair and founder Brian Wagner will be retained by Deloitte as a senior advisor. And why that's interesting to us is the fact that Deloitte, which really had no part in the cannabis industry at all up to this point, is now stepping into the cannabis game. And it's a clear indicator that this industry is expanding Uh, Accountants typically don't get into industries without good reason because they are by nature number crunching people. And so the numbers would have to be right for Deloitte to even be looking at this industry, which is a great indicator for those who are interested in getting in and an even better indicator for those who are already in the market. Cheryl, what do you think from the perspective of a micro cultivator? So the grand scheme for me, um, from my vision as a micro cultivator, is that there is no danger for um, for micro growers. There is an issue for large scale growers because I think it's the where they're having their problem is in scaling. And so, if you're a micro cultivator, knowing that Deloitte has jumped into the industry is uh, a huge indicator that this market is still very, very strong, and it's still a game worth jumping into. Even if you haven't started, this is is still the right time to get in because um, Deloitte wouldn't be making this move if if there was any risk. So the fact that they bought CCI uh, is, is just a, um, a huge green light for everybody that wants to get into the game. And that's not to say that there's no risk in the cannabis industry, but just that uh, the risk would be minimal, especially from their perspective, which would be why they're getting in really. That's my take too. I don't think that Deloitte would, uh, and and the same thing for Constellation making that huge investment in a in another large LP. There will be growing pains, but I don't think that there's. Um, I, I don't think it's the red flags that other people are seeing because of the uh, LPs on the stock market that aren't doing as well as they initially thought they would. 
And that really leads us to our next point, which is the change that's happening at Canopy. So Canopy Growth is one of the largest, it is the largest cannabis uh, corporation in Canada. And as such, they have appointed David Klein as their new CEO, effective January 15th of next year. Klein currently serves as Canopy Growth's board chair and chief financial officer at Constellation Brands, which became the Smiths Falls Ontario company's largest shareholder earlier this year. Klein will step down from his role at Constellation, a New York-based alcohol giant, which you may be familiar with because of the brand Corona. He takes the reins from Mark Zakulin, who agreed to remain as Canopy's sole CEO after the board of directors fired co-CEO Bruce Linton on July 3rd. Klein's executive capabilities, according to a news release, include consumer packaged goods and beverage, alcohol industry experience, strong financial orientation, experience operating in regulated markets in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and Europe, building consumer brands, leveraging operational scale across a dispersed production footprint, and really developing high, diverse and high-performance teams. Included in Klein's role as CFO at Constellation was overseeing the company's mergers and acquisitions and information technology. Klein was awarded Best CFO three years in a row by Institutional Investor Magazine. And Canopy Growth, according to Klein, sits at the forefront of one of the most exciting new market opportunities in our lifetime. And it's not lost on me that uh, part of Klein's, one of his major parts of of working at Constellation was that he was overseeing the company's mergers and acquisitions, which is exactly how they became such large stakeholders in Canopy Growth. So really the reason that I wanted to present this information to people in the cannabis industry and those interested is because this is the corporatization of cannabis in Canada. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone to see more CEOs and CFOs that are coming from related industries that are about an arm's length away, uh, taking on a larger capacity role and more positions within cannabis corporations. So really right now we're in a market that's called micro cultivators and licensed producers. But ultimately it's really small businesses and corporations. And that that's just going to become more clear as things unfold. These brands like, like Canopy, like Aurora, they are, they are corporations, they are publicly traded companies, and they have a perspective, just as we mentioned that one of Klein's strong points is a financial orientation. And that's really what you're looking for from a corporation. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best cannabis producers out there, no matter what kind of uh, corporate background they might have. Cannabis is a it's truly something that does best as a craft product when there's care and attention and almost a hands-on perspective because it is a living, breathing plant. It needs interaction. It needs a certain amount of care in order to do well. So it's just very interesting to, to see the corporate and how that is playing out. I think it's very interesting that, <clears throat> that uh, this gen- what did you say his name was? Brian Klein? is coming from David Klein. David Klein is coming from New York City to work at a, a company that's based out of Smith Falls, Ontario. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see if he actually moves to Smith Falls or if he's going to run it from the States. But again, even though it's not legal in the States federally, I find it interesting that um, brands like Constellation, which is the, the parent of the Corona Beer Company, um, 
they're coming to Canada to get involved in this game. And it's very interesting that he is a an American mm-hmm. getting very heavily involved in the cannabis industry, which is federally legal in the United States of America. So I'm interested in, now granted, he won't necessarily be um, hands-on, like he's not physically selling cannabis, he's not actively distributing it to anyone. So in that sense, um, it's I can see why there's a bit of a gray area there, but he's definitely involved in the cannabis industry. And it's a very interesting dynamic to be a U.S. citizen involved in an industry that is illegal in the U.S. And that, again, now brings me around to something else that we've all heard horror stories about. When you go to the border, don't tell uh, the Border Patrol as you're crossing into the states that you're involved in the cannabis industry. Even as an investor, don't, uh, don't mention that you're involved with the cannabis industry in any way. So I'm going to guess that this gentleman is going to have an interesting time crossing the border, being an American, running the second largest cannabis company in the world. Absolutely. It's it's definitely going to be interesting to watch it play out yeah. from a citizen perspective, just, you know, not being a Canadian citizen. So now we're going to discuss a very interesting aspect, which is the demand for more access and more research. So according to a separate source at MJ Biz Daily, more than 20 congressional lawmakers sent a bipartisan letter to U.S. Attorney General William Barr requesting that the Drug Enforcement Agency allow federally licensed researchers to buy products from state legal dispensaries to study the medical benefits and risks of cannabis. The DEA has said that it wants to expand cannabis research, but has dragged its heels on approving pending research applications. Currently, the University of Mississippi is the only DEA licensed cannabis supplier, and some researchers say the quality of the marijuana is subpar. Well, that's what we've been hearing from growers who've been growing here in Canada for 20 years, that any any cannabis product that's coming out of a large scale facility isn't good quality. And, and there's a lot to be speculated from that. You know, are they hiring botanists instead of what the industry has termed quote master growers? Are they, or is it the aspect that the plant does better in a smaller environment where it has more of a holistic uh, experience? And, and that's something that we really won't know for sure until we do more research. But there's definitely a connection between large-scale production in very commercial facilities and subpar quality. And also, this is very interesting because it's, we keep seeing these baby steps of the U.S. really trying to push forward progress on cannabis legalization in some sense. So whether that's federally legal medical cannabis or federally legal recreational for adult use, that still remains to be seen. But the evidence is almost daily that they are considering a move towards some form of legalization. According to our second source on this particular topic, Leafly, data released by Health Canada in response to a global news access to information request revealed 95% of cannabis produce produced between licensed cultivators tested negative for pesticides during the period between November 2018 and November 2019. November 2018 and February 2019, sorry. 
During that time, Health Canada conducted 133 tests finding restricted pesticides in five products. In four of the five cases, the substances were within allowable limits, while in one case, a sample contained dangerous levels of the mildew killer microbutanol, which is carcinogenic and toxic when burned. And so what was really happening was prior to this, the Health Canada had, there were facilities that were cultivating cannabis under specific licenses or under medical use. And the, there was a much higher rate of toxicity levels in this cannabis. So Health Canada really cracked down on what you could use in the products, what was safe to use. And the great news is that the entire industry responded to that crackdown. And so there was a series of scandals that unfolded where it was extremely high levels of dangerous carcinogenic type products that were showing levels in cannabis that had been tested. And this series of scandals meant prior to adult use legalization that many saw medical cannabis and that sector as really a wild west of lawless pesticide application and a stereotype that producers were happy to escape. So now there's a lot of praise for Health Canada for acting so aggressively towards pesticides and embracing biological pest control over chemical agents. So now, two years down the road from when that scandal sort of happened, where there was, I, I believe it was about 35% of the product that was tested, tested positive for dangerously high levels. Now we're two years away from that and several months into legalization, and Health Canada began forcing LPs to send product samples to independent labs for pesticide screenings. And while some critics are still concerned about the 5% in this most recent study of cannabis that did test positive for banned materials, it's a marked improvement on what was tested in 2017 and that in the range of 35% testing positive for dangerous materials in the cannabis. So why is this relevant to us? Well, first of all, if you're a user, you definitely want your product to be safe. So the fact that only 5% and really only one of those five that did test positive was actually dangerous is a great indicator of the, the measures that we're taking as an industry in Canada to really protect the consumer and get rid of the, the stigma that cannabis is dangerous and that it can harm people. That can really only happen when it's been contaminated with products that are not uh, beneficial to the human system. So it's really great to see that still in the early stages of legalization, Health Canada is, is taking consumer safety so seriously and the fact that they are the end user of the cannabis product and that their safety should be the first priority for everybody, including craft growers, because flower quality is where everything stems from. You know, if you don't have a good product, you're not going to have a business. And so if you're a craft grower, Flower quality should be your number one priority. And if you're an LP, flower quality should also be your number one priority because everything else comes from it. If your flower is testing positive for dangerous materials or cross-contamination or bacteria, that means that something went wrong earlier on in the plant. I mean, it could have happened later, just potentially right after it was harvested, but it's more likely that it occurred at some earlier stage in the plant. 
And this is also a note to all legal growers that Health Canada is doing tests and is sampling products for testing, which is a good thing. A lot of people feel that Health Canada is sort of a big brother type of, of authority figure. And really, we all want to see cannabis do well in the industry and, and for the industry to mature quickly, but also safely. And the best way to do that is to provide safe quality product for people. Cheryl, what do you feel about this new study on the pesticide? I think for patients and even recreational users that are um, consuming marijuana, this is a great thing to know that the government is cracking down on even black market growers that, um, you know, aren't abiding by the rules. And, and it, it's scary for a user to have to think that, gee, this might have, you know, some sort of bug spray in it that's, that's carcinogenic. So I think as a, as a user, it's a wonderful thing to know that Health Canada is, is guarding the gate to, to, uh, to make sure that safe cannabis is provided to, to everybody in Canada and, and for the export market as well. And as a grower, for me, um, of course, you know, we don't use anything. We, we try to go organic in everything we do. So our pest control is, um, is ladybugs and things like that. system and we don't use any sprays at all so i i'm glad that that health canada is cracking down on um, growers that are using substances that aren't good for the public and really aren't good for the environment either if it's if it's something that's dangerous for human consumption and you know there are natural elements out there that are not to be consumed uh, by humans but by and large pesticides are chemical based and so ultimately as they rinse off the plant they're not healthy for the environment either. So it's a great perspective for, and and stance for all growers in the industry to take to try and limit that pesticide use on their plants for their consumer, but also for the environment. Right. So now we're gonna talk about legal versus illegal. And in Canada, as most countries that decide to legalize are going to face a similar situation, in Canada, we're currently facing a market where there are some illegal retail facilities and then there are legal retail facilities popping up and each province has determined how they want to handle their retail facilities individually. So this specific example is from BC. And according to the province, marijuana may be legal across Canada now, but BC's newly formed pot police are still busy raiding illegal cannabis stores. Officially known as the Community Safety Unit, the Provincial Pot Squad is responsible for shutting down unlicensed marijuana merchants. The year-old police force task is now gearing up its enforcement activities and really cracking down on unlicensed cannabis stores and seizing pot, cash, computer records, and sometimes even weapons. According to the Solicitor General Mark Farnworth, the goal is to shut down illegal stores. He also revealed that the unit has already staged multiple raids, more than 20, of unlicensed retailers, and the Community Safety Unit has far-reaching powers to enter premises, premises without a warrant and seize evidence. Farnworth said that his police unit has already hauled in a very extensive load of illegal dope and black market loot. According to Farnworth, these unlicensed retailers are cash-only operations. In one example, 
nearly half a million dollars in cash was taken. In another case, around $450,000 worth of cannabis product was seized. It's fairly significant. And again, that's according to Farnworth. He said that his squad is trying to be fair and reasonable to black market cannabis merchants as the province develops a network of legally licensed stores. So, and also they have given a lot of these illegal stores warnings and, uh, citations and other methods prior to stepping in and seizing their product or their cash or whatever it may be. And so we can see it from both sides, obviously. I mean, a lot of these black market growers and retail facilities have been around for a long time and the government really just looked the other way, especially in British Columbia. And now that it's legal, there's sort of this battle happening between long-standing, well-established black market retail shops and growers and the new legal sources. And so we can look at the black market and paint them as the bad guy if we want to, but a lot of these places get shut down and then reopen because they have a consumer base of people who need their product. A lot of these people are using it because of medical conditions and they have grown very comfortable going to this particular retail outlet because they trust the people who are selling there. So we can, you know, it's not always black and white in terms of this legalization market where there are people who started for the right reasons, championed the legalization of cannabis and now are facing negative consequences because of the legalization. So there's definitely a case to be made on both sides. And a lot of the black market retail facilities, you could make the case that they need to be shut down because of consumer safety. But a lot of those people were also the OGs of the cannabis industry. And they may need some help getting into the legal market. So that's really, I think, where a happy medium could be struck. Because of course, the legal facilities and retail operations are they don't want to have to deal with competition from an illegal source when obviously it's illegal. So they've made the effort to go legal and spent all the money on fees and getting licensed. And now they're dealing with illegal competition. And in some cases, the, the battle, if you will, between the two has been um, unfair on both sides, but really what needs to happen, those who want to get legal, need to be given some sort of clear and concise documentation while they're going through the process of getting legal, as in almost a grandfathered status, where they still have to meet all the same legal requirements, but they're allowed to remain open while they go through this process, so that the consumers who have developed this relationship with them, and some of those people might be suffering from ALS or might be receiving chemo treatment, and they need this cannabis to maintain a decent quality of life. And they only feel comfortable purchasing from a a place that they've been going to for years. So there's a lot at play here. It's definitely not black and white, but I think there's room for improvement on both sides in terms of meeting in the middle where the task force isn't seizing property, but also these black market facilities and retail shops are truly making an effort to go the legal route and are being given documentation to have their status sort of put on hold while they get legal. And Cheryl, that's really an interesting question for you because we don't have necessarily the same issue here in Ontario. We do have a few shops uh, in some of the major cities, but for the most part, we're not dealing with the same sort of um, market that, that has been around for decades out in BC of 
of illegal shops and people were just looking the other way. So what's your perspective on this whole dynamic between, you know, the black market of people who championed the legalization, but now aren't necessarily able they're getting to closed go out. It? Yeah, they're getting closed out. And that's, I, I, I see their point that they, and sometimes these, these um, illegal shops, and I use that word loosely, um, because they were the ones that, that crashed the door open for everybody else. Um, sometimes they're, uh, they don't want to join the, the, the man. They don't want to be corporate. They don't want, they want to keep doing what they're doing. And there, I think there is a problem because they have to fall under the same guidelines, not to make it fair for everybody else, but for the consumer to know that they're buying a safe product. And, and that's a big one. I think, um, for a lot of the growers that are out there, they, they have to join the, um, the mainstream and, and make sure that what they're providing to the public is safe. And, and they can say, well, what we're, we grow, we grow it ourselves and we're providing a safe product. But it's like buying an electrical product that doesn't have that CSA approval on the back. It's, it just keeps everybody safe. It lets everybody sleep soundly at night to know that, you know, your house isn't going to burn down because you bought Christmas lights that were produced in a place that they don't have any sort of safety standards. It's the same thing for cannabis that you want to know that where you're getting your cannabis from is produced in a very safe manner. And I think these guys just need to join the, join the, uh, the boat ride and, and get legal. And it can be a time consuming process. And I get that. And I think what you suggested that they be allowed to remain open, obviously they, they understand what they're doing. And so it would be, I think, fair to allow them to remain open while they sort of grandfather themselves into the, into the system. If they want to, I, I'll bet there are some that just don't even want to get involved. And really it is that sort of, um, like they do know what they're doing. They've been yeah. doing it for a long time. So giving them some sort of temporary status, that's maybe, you know, 18 months or what have you to go through the process of legalization. And then you've got the, <clears throat> the online dispensaries too, that, I mean, people have been able to, you can still buy product online. That's not, it's the same as these vape pens. Like who knows where this stuff is coming from and how it's produced. And it's just frightening to, to think that, you know, you might think you're buying cannabis from a grower in the Kootenays, but it, it might be coming from who knows where, where they're using all kinds of pesticides or it's just um, it's a crazy world. And that's a very interesting point because what has been discussed is that this vaping crisis where people are getting very sick could actually lead to legalization in places like the U.S. According to our information, the deadly lung illness linked to vaping could prompt the U.S. and other countries to legalize. According to Tilray CEO Brendan Kennedy, he told CNBC on Tuesday, all the products that we produce in Canada and produce around the world are well tested by not only Health Canada, but regulators in other countries. And which makes a lot of sense because they wouldn't be able to put dangerous um, elements that, that produce dangerous side effects into products if they were being regulated by the FDA, by the Drug Enforcement Agency, by a, a, like Health Canada, a figure like Health Canada in the U.S., and so there are multiple states who are considering legalizing in 2020. And according to 420 Investor Daily, 
recently, Arizona has already legalized medical cannabis. After a failed attempt to legalize recreational marijuana in 2016, the state has a new initiative for adult-use-only cannabis, which is likely to appear on the 2020 ballot. A recent poll by OH Predictive Insights suggests that only half of Arizona voters showed support for legalization of marijuana. So it, it still could go either way. But again, we're seeing a ton of evidence on almost a daily basis where there is a big case for legalization in the U.S., if for no other reason than for consumer safety. Arkansas has also legalized medical cannabis. The Arkansas Adult Use Marijuana Initiative is likely to appear on the ballot on November 3rd, 2020. To get certified for the ballot, the initiative should collect 89,151 signatures before July 3rd, 2020. And as of now, two ballot initiatives to legalize marijuana have been filed in the state. So if you live in Arkansas and you are someone who wants to see adult use marijuana passed in your state, definitely do some research about how you can get your signature on one or both of those ballots so that your voice can be heard in terms of what you want to see from your state government. Florida also has medical cannabis and is likely to legalize recreational cannabis in 2020. As of now, there are three initiatives to legalize recreational marijuana in the state of Florida. The chances of at least one initiative passing the ballot appear very good. The most popular initiative, Make It Legal Florida, has already secured the required signatures. A recent poll by the University of North Florida suggests that 64% of voters support the legalization of adult use marijuana in Florida. So it's highly likely that Florida is going to join California, Washington, Maine, and several of the other states who have legalized recreational cannabis in a short amount of time, potentially even within the year. Missouri has legalized the use of medical marijuana through a ballot initiative in 2018. The initiative to legalize recreational marijuana and expunge nonviolent cannabis-related crimes in the state may also appear on the 2020 ballot. And if you live in Missouri, it would be imperative for you to research what that initiative is so that you can add your signature and get that initiative added to the ballot. New Jersey has legalized medical marijuana as of almost a decade ago. The state is still restrictive, though, about adult use cannabis. And after a two-year struggle, the initiative to legalize marijuana might appear on the 2020 ballot. And North Dakota has legalized the use of medical cannabis as well, but it's previously rejected the proposal to legalize adult use marijuana by a close vote of 59% to 41%. Currently, two groups are working to include initiatives to legalize recreational cannabis in the next year's ballot. So if you live in any of those areas, definitely do some research on finding out what the initiatives are for your state so that you can get involved or even just add your signature, but do something that indicates the uh, what you want to see from your state. And why that matters is, as we discussed last week, the MORE Act, the act that passed by the House Judiciary Committee, if it passes through the Senate and the House, it will decriminalize cannabis at the federal level, and it's also aimed at expunging marijuana-related crime. This would be a major jump forward for the legalization of cannabis in the U.S., but if it doesn't pass, it's really just prolonging the inevitable. As we've discussed through multiple points today, there are so many signs that the states are making the decision themselves to legalize. They're hearing what people want. We are seeing more research in the U.S., and and it's coming from places like Israel and Canada, where cannabis is a 
a product that can really help people and that the the war on drugs quote unquote has been somewhat detrimental in terms of the advancement of a product that really can help a lot of people. Cannabis is going to be legalized in the U.S. whether it happens in November 2020 or it happens five years from now. It is going to happen. The writing is, I mean, it's more than on the wall. It's showing up every single day from multiple standpoints where the states themselves are recognizing what people want and eventually the federal government will will end up doing the same even if it takes you know 40 states to recreational legalize before it gets to the point where it's federally acknowledged it is an inevitability as i said so let's tie that back to the gentleman from new york city that's going to be i'm guessing living in smith falls he's prepping himself for it to become recreational recreationally legal in the US because they're already um I I'm aware of canopy owning large tracts of land in Florida getting ready to to grow or build and grow down there and so the reason he's doing it he's not looking at the at the Canadian market he's looking to export the product that's produced at Smith Falls and I think that's what a lot of cannabis corporations are looking at doing that's I mean Canada and the U.S. are very friendly neighbors. They always have been, for the most part, always have been. So it's it's definitely going to be something that occurs. When the U.S. legalizes, they're not going to have enough product coming from California and Washington and the various few other states that have legalized to supply the population of the U.S. with the demand that's going to occur. Right. So really, by by Canada legalizing earlier, it's setting them up in a position to be a great trading partner when cannabis is legal in the U.S. So that's our talk for today. Lots of exciting things, especially happening in the U.S. market as we're seeing a lot of pressure and progress towards legalization on a state level, absolutely, and also on a federal level. That is our show for today. I hope that you enjoyed all the topics that we covered. And if you did, then please feel free to share it with someone else who's also interested in the cannabis industry and a microcultivation or boutique craft grower perspective. This week, we're off to the MJ BizCon in Vegas, where we're going to be coming back with tons of information and insight all about the marijuana industry and the cannabis industry in Canada, the U.S., uh, Europe, and um, really a global perspective. So we'll have lots of insights next week and probably for weeks after that. And if we see you at the convention, then please feel free to say hi. So thank you, Cheryl, for being with us today on the podcast and bringing your microcultivator's perspective. Always a pleasure. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions about today's topics or the cannabis industry in general, feel free to send an email to jewel at cwcultivations.com. That's C-W-C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-I-O-N-S dot com.